0: So good to see so many of you coming out tonight. Some of you are new, and uh, some of you were uh, with the church here yesterday in terms of uh, some of the things we talked about. And so I'm just going to do a quick introduction. Uh, We're talking about um, a model of doing church that uh, starts with an understanding that God made us for relationships, that uh, in the very beginning he created human beings And as Jim pointed out earlier, uh, he said it's not good for you to be alone. And that the, the New Testament really emphasizes the priority of loving relationships. Love not a feeling, but love a commitment to do that which is best for the other person and a willingness to lay down our lives for other people. So you take the concept of love and then you couple that with the New Testament teaching. And by the way, we spent a lot of time this afternoon looking at the concept that the overriding purpose of the community of faith, the church, is discipleship. And uh, if you were not able to be with us this afternoon, we would encourage you to get the, uh, to get a CD of that conversation because it's a fundamentally important one. if our purpose is to come together and, and if the purpose God wants to do is worship, well, then that's one thing. But if the purpose of being uh, a church and coming together, if discipleship is the underlying purpose behind worship and everything else, Well, then that's another thing. And so the results will be really different. Um, I'd like to introduce to you Jim Putman, who uh, is the lead pastor at Real Life Ministries in Post Falls, Idaho. Uh, He's going to tell the story tonight of how they've created a church system to disciple people and how they've impacted the community. Jim's going to tell you more about that. I've told some of you that they're the primary social service agency in their county after the government in terms of taking care of people. Their Celebrate Recovery program uh, can have seven, sometimes 800 people uh, every week in uh, recovery ministries. And Jim's going to tell you a lot of those things. Most of you have heard that there are churches somewhere around 8,000 people on a weekly basis. Uh, The thing that's significant about that in particular to me is that the towns of uh, Post Falls and Coeur d'Alene together only represent 40,000 people. And the county itself, I think is 120... 120 people in the county. So God's really blessed them in terms of impacting a community. They've planted six churches. Two of those churches already have over 1,000 people in regular attendance. But the the attendance on Sundays is not the key factor or attendance on weekends. It's the number of people in small groups who are experiencing biblical discipleship, who are experiencing the love that God intended and becoming more and more like Jesus. So tonight, Jim's going to talk to us about creating systems in churches that do that, so let me lead us in a word of prayer, and then i 'd uh, turn things over to Jim, Lord, uh, I pray tonight for all of us, that your holy Spirit would richly be present. Uh, Lord, I pray that you 'd uh, bring to Jim 's mind everything you want him to say, that he 'd say everything you want him to say, and nothing more, nothing less. And I pray for all of us tonight, this just wouldn 't be words, but you 'd help us, all of us to engage more proactively and for some of us with a very deep-rooted, fundamental, life-altering commitment to make disciples the way Jesus did. And so we ask these things and commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Everybody who agreed with that said, welcome, Jim. Hi. How
1: many of you uh, preached yesterday? All over the, at your churches. That's it? Did the rest of you have time off or what? Yeah, we had five services this weekend, so it's... What time is it here? Uh, it's good to be here with all of you. Thanks for coming. It's it's uh, we got a bunch of new people here. Let me just uh, um, say that uh, in review, what we've talked about so far is that, uh, again... Um, in Matthew 16:18, Jesus said, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." We are supposed to be winning. We're supposed to be on a winning team. God's church is supposed to win. The church is God's idea. Jesus said, "I will build my church," uh, and that church is, is supposed to win. And then we went through the statistics in America, and then we went through the statistics in Canada, and uh, we asked the question, "What is winning for a church?" And we came to the conclusion that we are to be making disciples. And if we're to be making disciples, and that's what it means to win, then how how is the team doing? And, and again, we went through the statistics and we found that the church in America, only 14% of the churches out of 386,000 are growing. About 10 churches a day close their doors. Only 2% of the churches in the United States are growing by new conversion growth. growing by new conversion growth. If the gates of hell were not to prevail against us, were not to stop us from going and making disciples, and yet only 2% of the churches in the United States are growing by making disciples, then is the church winning? Well, if the church isn't winning, how can that be when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against His church? How can that be? Well, then we made the distinction... Jesus didn't say the gates of hell will not prevail against a church. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. You know, in America, people bounce around from church to church, trying to find a church. It's church shopping that meets their needs, that uh, meets their perceived needs, because their real need and their perceived needs are often different. And so they're trying to find a church they can be a part of. You know, when, when that's the mentality of, of Christians, I'm going to go to a church that meets my needs, then it's my church. It's not Christ's church. And God didn't say that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. He said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Well, when we looked at the Canadian numbers, I'm sorry, guys, but uh, you ain't got nothing to be proud of either. When it comes to the numbers in Canada, and I'm not, again, we're not talking about every church. We're talking about, generally, the church in Canada, if making disciples is the purpose and the vision and the direction of the church, how is it doing? Not very good. The church is in decline. And so, I asked you to consider the box that you were handed what methodology are we using for church? What, what, uh, how have we designed our churches? What, what are we doing in our churches? How have we taken God's words from the Scripture, like pastor and teacher and apostle and 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 even disciple? How have we redefined those things in such a way that we have become ineffective? And I, I told you the story of Josiah and asked you to be like Josiah. Take the box that you were handed and compare it to the Word of God and be courageous enough. To do what you need to do. I want to say this to you before I move on. As the head goes, the body follows. In wrestling, we say it this way: kill the head, the body dies. That's a pleasant thought, isn't it? What do you think that means in wrestling? Kill the head, the body dies. Go for the head. You pound on their head. Their their body's irrelevant. As the body, uh, as the head goes, the body goes now we know Christ is the head of the church but the leaders are the directors and you know one of the problems I've always had is that you've got people who are supposed to be leading who uh, you know let me say it this way I got three boys. when I'm up in front driving I don't let the crazy kids in the back seat tell me where to go. What do you think that means? I'm the parent I'm driving, I'm not going to let my uh, when they were eight years old or ten years old. I'm not going to let them dictate what happens in the car. And too often, pastors are too interested in keeping their job and keeping the peace instead of examining the box and leading the reforms that need to happen in their own churches. It takes courage to be a leader. Don't let the crazy kids in the back seat drive the car. Does he understand the analogy? All right, well, we're going to start into session two, and uh, this is on page nine, and we're going to talk about creating a disciple-making organization, creating, you, you got, I said something that you totally touched a button for Bobby, and he's going to make me clarify, go ahead, when he comes running up, I know I'm, I've, I've blown it in Canada, go right ahead,
0: I don't understand something in Canada, go ahead. No, you're doing good. I just want to tell everybody, if you came late, we're getting uh, copies of this uh, outline for you. Uh, So we'll have black and white copies soon. That's it?
1: Wow, that was pleasant. I wish you'd have been mad at me. We're going to talk about, uh, as a leader, your job is not just to shepherd people or to to have a discipleship group. Your job is to create a culture of discipleship within your church. Your job is to organize the body in such a way that disciples can be made. You you heard me say this before. A lot of times people will come to a a seminar and they'll go, I'm going to go back and start a small group. And that's great. If you aren't leading a small group where disciples are being made, you're not doing your job. Great. But listen, you don't get paid for being a Christian. You, you you better be a Christian or you shouldn't get paid as a pastor. But everyone is supposed to be a disciple maker. Do you hear what I'm saying? Not everyone is a leader. But every Christian is to be and to make disciples. And so everybody should be doing that. And your, your job is to create a system by which people are learning to be disciples and learning to make disciples. You're raising up reliable people who then will be able to raise up others. That's the the, the charge that Paul gave Timothy. So now, that's going to take some organization. I told you that uh, in America we have what's called the organic church movement, meaning that it's kind of a house church movement and they're anti-organization. Now, I admit that organization uh, around the wrong principles... Organization done the wrong way can be a mess, but God is the God of order, and one of the gifts He gave to the church is the gift of administration. Isn't that true? Which means that He intends for the church to have order and organization to it. Now, not everybody's administrative. I am so so on administration. I have my gifts, but I value the gift of administration. Therefore, on my team, I want to have administration there. Many churches are one-dimensional. If the pastor is a pastor, it's a pastoral church. If a pastor is a teacher, it's a teaching church. No. If the pastor is a teacher, he better organize the right people around him to fill in all of the blanks in his giftedness set. In other words... If he's a teacher, what typically happens is everybody who likes good teaching in the town goes to that church and then another church might be a worship. They they just do great worship and everybody that likes worship goes to that church. And we've got the worship church and the teaching church. No, every church should have all the gifts of the body. We don't want all the feet over there, all the hands over over there, all the eyeballs over there. We want the eyeballs, the hands and the feet in the same place as the body of Christ. Is everybody hearing what I'm saying so far? So... Even though I don't, like for instance, I do not understand worship arts people. Way too emotional for me. Don't get them. Love them, need them, don't get them. Now I can either resent them, or I can value the differences. Much like with your wife. My wife is different than me. I know that some people actually married someone that was like them. I didn't. You know that whole term oppos- opposites attract? That's me and my wife. Now there is a time, and there are times, when she is so aggravating to me that my eyes cross because of the way she sees the world. But when I see her the way Jesus sees her, she was given to me to see the parts that I don't see and to fill me in. To fill in the giftedness holes in my, in my uh, parenting style, in my life. It's the same in the church. Organization is God's idea. So therefore, our job is to organize people in such a way that we can become a disciple-making machine. Now, don't think in terms of, that's so impersonal. If you've been hearing me talk about relationship, you know I'm not talking about an impersonal machine. But what I am saying is that we are to be a factory that produces... Uh, disciples who can make disciples when you release, train and release an army of disciples who can make disciples, you will never build big, big, big buildings big enough. Why? Because they're all disciple and care and share. they're taking over cities and you can't stop it. Make sense to you? All right. Let's go to page 9. The key to creating a disciple-making organization is alignment. I want you to underline that word, alignment. What does that mean? This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. You ready? Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in what? Mind and thought. Literally, one of those words has to do with direction and one of them has to do with heart. In other words, it's not enough that we have the same language going the same direction, all understanding our job. He actually, The Lord actually wants us to love one another at the heart level. So it's not just about function, body. It's about family, heart. Okay? He says, I appeal to you, my brothers. John 17 said, if, you, if these people will be one, the world will know. Cause and effect. Oneness. Do you remember when uh, Jesus said, A house divided against itself, what? Cannot stand. Do you remember when God came down to the Tower of Babel and he said, If I don't confuse their language, what? Nothing will be too hard for them. Nothing will be impossible for them. Oneness, unity, alignment is key to the body of Christ succeeding. Now, I'm going to give you four areas of alignment that I want you to think about. First area of alignment is doctrinal or theological alignment. In order for us to uh, be able to function together, to accomplish the mission, to be a team that wins, makes disciples, we must have doctrinal alignment. Uh, I'll put all this together for you in just a few minutes, but we have a membership class. We call it a one-on-one class the way Rick Warren called his. It just doesn't look anything like the same. It's built on our context with our beliefs. But that one oh one class goes through several areas. First, what are our salvation issues that in order for you to be a part of our church, you must agree on? If you don't agree with those, you cannot be in our church. Secondly, what are our non-salvation issues that are non-negotiables? Meaning, uh, you, if you speak in tongues, that doesn't mean you're not uh, going to heaven. Because you're not, heaven is not based on whether you speak in tongues or not. It's based on whether Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. But in our church, we believe you can believe whatever you want on that subject, but in practice, we will have no place in our church where the gift of speaking in tongues is going to happen. Not a small group, not a worship service. You want to speak in tongues? Go into, if, and you believe that's a, a gift of the Spirit? Go into your closet and do it there. Because the Bible says that you don't pray and babble and babble on. You go in your closet, shut the door, and it's between you and God. Now, it's not a salvation issue. You can believe that you have the gift of speaking in tongues. Or you can believe that, that that gift doesn't exist. But if you're saying, I have to believe you can speak in tongues, this is not the church for you. Now, we do this class before anybody does anything in our church other than attend. Why? Because it's a filter. I want to filter out problematic people before they get injected into the system. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's much like football. I went, I played, my kids uh, two years ago played football in Coeur d'Alene. We moved to Rathdrum. When we got to Rathrum, did they say, "You know what? Since your kids played football in Coeur d'Alene, they don't need to learn our playbook. Football is football." Did they say that? No, because in Coeur d'Alene, they ran a completely different kind of football, and they had a completely different language. When they in, in football, you get in the huddle, and the quarterback calls the play, and everybody has to know that play. They're part of that play. Right. If they don't know it Then when they call a play And everybody goes to the line of scrimmage They don't know where to line up And they all do their own thing And how does it work When you actually play the game that way? You lose Name the game Volleyball They have plays They call them A, B, C, D 1, 2, 3, 4 They make the call Everybody knows their part Everybody understands Well, what if you had a person who said You know what? I played football in Coeur And I don't like your playbook and I don't want to call it what you play, but you call it. What would, it, what would the, the coach in Rathram had said to me and my family? Go back to Coeur d'Alene. If you like playing football that way at Coeur d'Alene, go back to Coeur d'Alene. Because if we let you on our team, you will completely blow our team up. Let me ask you a question. Would they have been right about that? Why is it that we do such stupid things in the church where we go, you know what? You came from that church over there. Will you come on over here and you don't have to learn what we do? Well, actually, we don't really do anything except come to church, so go ahead. If we're going to make disciples and be disciples and we're going to have a team that functions together and understands its role, then we have to have some way to get all of these people together understanding their roles. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. If you do not get your talented people to play together, you lose. Is that true? All right. So there's essential doctrines. There's non-essential, non-negotiable doctrines. There's non-essential, negotiable doctrines. Here's what I mean by that. I... uh, I have a specific view on the end times. And uh, here's, uh, here, I won't even tell you what it is, but uh, uh, we've got some people on our staff who are premillennials. We have some people on our st- staff who are all millennials. I don't think we have any post millennials. We have some pre trib, some mid trib, some post trib. We have uh, different people that come from a variety of different backgrounds. Is it a salvation issue? No? You mean I could be wrong about how it's going to happen and still be going to heaven and go, wow, that was a surprise. I didn't think I'd be here this long. Or I thought I'd be here longer. Right? Or it's all over right now. One of those things. One of the things I always say to my staff or to this one guy on my staff who has a different view than me is I always go, you know what, Dan? On the way up, I'm going to look at you and go, see, I told you so. <laughs> but on the way up, we're both going to be on the way up. You see what I'm saying? I don't, I'm a pan-millennialist. It all pans out in the end. <laughs> okay? Now, here's the deal. If you believe I have to be premillennial to be saved, this is not the church for you. But if you can say you know what, there are great people who have had differing views on this non-salvation issue and we can agree to disagree, then this can be the church for you. It's a non-negotiable that it's a negotiable. You you can have a belief on that and that's great. And you can believe it with your whole heart. But that but you're not if you're saying I have to believe it to be saved, this isn't the church for you. Are you getting what I'm saying? It's a filter, and before we inject people into the system, we want to make sure that they're not coming here broken from another church wanting to spread their disease. The disease of division, and backbiting, and gossip. And I don't care how much money they have, because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He doesn't need it. Everybody all right? Okay. You've got to define important terms. For instance, what does it take to be saved? These people, uh, in our 101 class, we have an average of 14 denominations per class, not counting unsaved people. 14 denominations. Okay, They, they come from all different backgrounds. Many of them you know, went to church when they were little, and now they, they haven't been to church in 22 years. And But they have still, they were taught some things, like they were sprinkled as children, or they were, you know, christened, or, or, you know, all different kinds of views. And so we have to say, all right, here's the deal. This is what we believe about being saved. Now, here's the deal. If our job is to make disciples, and we can't agree on what it takes to be saved, then we're not going to be making the same kind of disciples. Therefore... I love you, wish you change your view to our view. If you can't do that, you got to go. It makes sense to you. Any of you afraid to do that? It's kind of scary, isn't it? But let me ask you a question. If a coach on a football team couldn't say, you know what, you may have played at Coeur d'Alene, but in Rafter we do it this way, should he be coach? Should he? Did Paul just say, hey, it's okay, you guys can circumcise the Gentiles. Guys, go ahead and get we got to make the Jews happy. Did he say that? No, he said, listen, I wish that those guys would emasculate themselves. He said, didn't he say that? Guys, I mean, I don't try to be crass. He said it. Don't blame me. He said it. Even defining what a disciple is. What is a disciple? Okay,
0: here we go. <laughs> no, no, no. This is good. <clears throat> let me let me just uh, uh, be real clear so you all understand. What Jim is saying is when it comes to salvation issues, it's essential and they're not going to compromise on it. There are other non-essentials. So he's not saying everybody has to have the same view, but what he's saying is we have to conduct ourselves in non-divisive ways. And so it's the whole process of saying what are the essentials and what are the things that are non-negotiable even if they're not essential. Uh, Sometimes people think of it essentials, importance, and personals. You define freedom and you define uniformity up front to keep everybody aligned.
1: He says it way smarter than I said it. Have you noticed that? It's that doctorate degree he's got. Any questions on that before I move on? Yeah. The elders do. Right, let's look at it a little bit different. Uh, Let's look at it like this. Let's say that I have my children, right? And I decide to adopt someone as a part of our family. I'm totally willing to do that. Let's say that I decide I'm going to adopt a 14-year-old kid. And I got an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And I bring that kid in, and before I decide to bring him into my family, I ask him some questions like, Are you going to molest my daughter? That's a pretty important question. Now, oftentimes they wouldn't admit that, right? But in this body, we're the family of God. And before I'm going to allow somebody to come and be a part of it, they're going to be safe to play with my kids. I will not sacrifice my own children knowingly, my own sheep knowingly, for someone who's a wolf but might turn someday into a sheep we're called to guard the sheep, that vicious wolves are going to sneak in amongst us. And somehow I have to be able to figure out to the best of my ability who those people are to protect our body from the wolf. Right? So I want them to come to know the Lord. But if they're saying in our 101 class, nope, I don't believe that. I think every person should speak in tongues. And when I go to a small group... And deal with that small group leader? He won't be as strong as you are, Jim Putman. He won't know his stuff. He'll be a brand new leader, and I will own him. And I will divide that group. And I will teach whatever I want in that group. But I want to be a part, so I'll write whatever. I'll say whatever. And even though I've split three other churches, and I've moved from church to church to church for years, you see what I'm saying? Or I want to be a member of your church, Jim, but I don't believe in the Trinity. No, sorry. You can keep coming, and and I'll talk with you through it, and I'll walk with you through it, but until you decide that you believe the salvation things that we believe in, you, you can't be a part or a member of our church. Oh, yeah 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 if you have a question on these things you you write you, you get a chance for us to come and sit down with you through the 1 on 1 class so it's not like come to the 1 on 1 class you don't like it you're out of here if you have questions we go and meet with them later to talk them through that process so i'm i'm giving you the short version of how it all plays out that's a good question there was somebody else over here yeah just
0: you can comment on the alignment process it seems to me that if i was in a situation play out in one way but a question we've often had is this process established
1: I'll, I'll put that together with you in a little bit. We're coming there. What do you do? how do you apply this in the context of a new church versus an old church? All right let's go to this next thing. Let me give you an example of one of the things that we have to get in alignment with right away. The, the discussion of what, if we're, if we're about making disciple, what is a disciple? Let me just tell you what we do at our church. We've done it several times over the years. We bring in whole teams of people. In fact, several of you have come to our groups with your whole team. Raise your hand if you have come with your whole team. All right. So let's say five, six, seven, eight people come, and we start out by talking about the purpose of the church is to make disciples, and the whole team agrees. They all agree. Yep, it's about making disciples. We need to make disciples. The next thing we often do is we make them without talking to each other. We give them a piece of paper and we say, write down the definition of a disciple. They each write down the definition of a disciple. How often do you think everybody at that same table that came from the same church has the same definition of a disciple? Not for real. In all the years we've been doing this, one time, So then let's, let's, let's make this analogy to football again. Let's say that I call a play in the huddle, and then I give everybody a piece of paper. We say we're going to do X, Y, 72. Everybody goes, ready, break. And I say, whoa, 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 stop. Give everybody a piece of paper, write on the piece of paper what that play is, and let's say none of them have the same play on the piece of paper. What's the chances of them succeeding? What is the definition of a disciple? If I were to go around in this room, you'd all have a different definition, which means that I think I could be succeeding by making a disciple and you might think I was absolutely failing. Do you see the problem? What is it? it, Before you can raise up people to make disciples, your people need to know what in the world a disciple is. Or do you just let them go disciples whatever you think it is in your mind? Is everybody hearing what I'm saying so far? So if I were to ask your congregation, what's the purpose of the church? How many of them would say to make disciples? Probably some. Which means that you've got a whole group of people that are supposed to be your team that do not have the same definition of terms or even goals. Which is why you could be doing something so well and they could be so mad at you and think you're a failure. Because you haven't defined terms. Secondly, on your staff or your eldership, if we did decide that it's to make disciples, how many of your people would define that the same way? And is that a problem? Here's how we do it in our church. And I'm not, once again, I'm not asking you to do, I'm I'm not saying make real life in your town or whatever. You have a different context. There's a whole, getting to the right, choosing the right destination and getting there the right way is two different concepts. Meaning, don't just steal what we do here, what I'm doing here, and go apply it where you guys are at. That's not good leadership. Take the, the transferable principles and apply it to your context with your leaders. Okay, But let me just explain to you what we do in our church. We say, in the invitation is the definition. What did I just say? In the invitation is the definition. In Matthew chapter 4, 19, Jesus said, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, let's say that what I just said again. In the invitation is the definition. Jesus just invited his disciples to come and follow him. There are three keys to that phrase. By the way, how many of you can tell me where, what verse I just quoted is? What's the verse? Don't, don't, don't say it. Raise your hand if you know what verse I just quoted. Okay, now let me say it again. Matthew 4.19. Somebody tell me it. If you didn't even know where it was, tell me the verse itself. Come and what? And I will. Now why is it so simple? Because I have 8,000 people that I'm trying to get on the same page. If I make it very much more complex, what happens? Matthew 4.19. Jesus said, come and follow me. A disciple is one who is what? Following Jesus. What does that mean? You're you're called, we always say, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. Yes, that's true. What kind of relationship? He leads, you follow. You know what we do with Jesus? Jesus will join your life and join your mission and help you accomplish your dreams. Jesus, Jesus will be your little dog. Fetch for me, Jesus. Get me what, get me what I want. That's the, that's the kind of Christianity we teach, oftentimes. Jesus will join your life and join your mission. No. Jesus says, you come and you follow me. We also say, this is being affected at the head level. Why? He's the head, he's in in charge, he's my authority, he's the head of of the body. I know who he is. That's why they followed him. He's the Messiah. Great teacher, I will follow him. He is my head, my authority. Come and follow me. Second, he says, and I will what? Make you. Now this speaks of process. He says, I'll take you as you are, you're a fisherman, but I'm not going to leave you that way. You're going to change. I'm going to transform you. You're going to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. This speaks of process. A disciple is one who is following. A disciple is one who's being changed by Christ. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its what? All right. Thirdly... A disciple is one who's committed to the mission of Christ. Come and follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of, men. Fishers of men. This speaks of the head. This speaks of the heart or character change. This speaks of the hands. I will actually serve in the mission with my hands. I will follow because he's my head. I will be changed because he's changing my heart. And I will serve him. I'm committed to his mission. He's got my hands. Do you, are you understanding this? I am following Christ. I'm being changed by Christ. I'm committed to the mission of Christ. In the invitation is the definition of a disciple one following, one being changed by, one committed to the mission of Christ. Now, let me just say this to you. If you claim to be a Christian, but you are not following Christ, if you claim to be a disciple, but you are not following Christ, are you a disciple? If you claim to be a disciple, but you're not changing. I didn't say that you didn't have things that needed to be changed still. We're going to always have that. But the question is, are you changing? If you're not changing, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? If you claim to be a disciple of Christ, but you are not interested in his mission whatsoever, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? If you're not changed at the head, the heart, and the hands level. If you're not changing, you know a tree by its what? So when I say we're going to make disciples, what am I saying? We're going to go out and help people know who Jesus is so they can follow him. We're going to walk along with them as they change because a a disciple is changing. They're becoming more and more like Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is growing in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. This speaks of character. They're following Him. They're being obedient to Him. They're They're also changing who they are. They're being changed from the inside out. And you can tell they're serving Christ. They're a part of the mission. So let me ask you this. In America... They say that 88% of the people in church, 88% of the people in church, sit. 12% does the majority of the work. They say in America that 12% of Christians tithe. When you put all Christians together, it equals 3%. If those were the numbers, tithing, service, ministry, sharing their faith, only 10% Is going to share their faith in America. What's the percentage of those who go to church. That are really disciples of Jesus. Somewhere around 10%. You'll know them by their. Fruit. They're following. They're being changed by. And they're committed to the mission of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Does that help your people know what they're actually shooting for for others, but also measuring against themselves, where are they at? Does the Spirit, His Word of God say that we ought to examine ourselves to see if we are in Christ? When we talk about theological alignment... We're talking about defining key terms, getting everybody on the same page so that we can work together to be a disciple-making organization. Secondly, second kind of alignment is that I'm talking about philosophical or directional alignment. Philosophical or directional alignment. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is this, as believers, and I don't, there it is, as believers, we know that we are going to make disciples, we are going to figure out philosophically how we are going to do that together. Meaning, I can define, I can say, hey, theologically, we're all aligned. But when it comes to actually putting it into practice how we're going to do it as a church, if we're not aligned, now we, we aren't working together. For instance, if I've got some people that think, well, we're going to do it in small groups, and some people think we're going to do it in um, some other way. I don't know how else you would make disciples other than small groups, but we're going to do it in some other way. They both want to make disciples, but they're not aligned. They're not working together. They don't even have the same philosophy. It'd be kind of like, a, we're both going to play football, but I want to run it and I want to pass it. Well, how do we, we... We have the same rules. We we You guys don't want to do it the same way. How are we going to possibly do it? There has to be philosophical alignment as well. What are our core values? What do we believe in? What are we going to hold to? All right? Even such things as uh, we are going to be a missions church versus an area local ministry church. We're going to make disciples. Um, You know, the, the real struggle we face is we've got always this pull between people who are called to foreign missions and people who are called to local missions, and they actually kind of resent each other at times in churches all across America. We all want to make disciples, but how do we do it? Where are we going to start? And then we have to actually go through Acts 1.8. Jesus said you're going to start in Jerusalem, then you're going to go to Judea, then you're going to go to Samaria, then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus said you're going to start right where you are. The overflow of that is going to go to the surrounding area. The overflow of that is going to go to the nation. The overflow of that is going to go to the world. Yes, we're going to get to the world, but we're going to do it right here first. So we have to align them in that way. Now, here's what I'm going to do. It's getting late. What time is it here? Okay, I'm going to concentrate on this next part because I can see you guys. You just ate. It's been a long day. I'm going to share with you what we call in our church the systematic alignment. You see this next page? I'm going to draw something like it. I'm not a very good artist. The world. Okay, this is the world. Now, here's what I want to say to you first. Do you remember at the beginning of the session, I said that we were told to go into the world. We were not told to build it and have them come to us. Does that make sense to you? Are you hearing what I'm saying right now? Because I think many Christians go inside their walls and say, you guys come to us. This is our club. We'll let you come in, but only if you look like us and you want to be a part of us. This is what we call a bridge. We call these bridges. A bridge is a place where we meet the unchurched on common ground. For instance, let me give you an example. This, by the way, is called the worship service. Then there's 101, 201, 301, 401. These are small groups. So let me explain this to you. We have in our our church the under-12 national championship wrestling team. Years ago, I won some of the wrestlers in the area to the Lord. They actually wanted to start a little kids wrestling team because there needed to be one. They've now won the national championship two of the last three years, and they took third the other year. We have a waiting list of 185 kids that would like to be in the program, but we've got no place to put them. So our team is full. Everybody, every non-Christian, everybody in the area wants their kid to be on this wrestling team because they travel all over the United States kicking everyone's fanny. Why do they want them to do that? Because we knock people out in the name of Jesus. Okay? They're tough. Now... We didn't say, you wrestling community, you come to us. You know, the sad part of it is this. You know, most Christians think that in order to reach the lost, they've got to have an amazing worship service with great music. Do you know how silly you are when you believe that? Do you know that non-Christians don't like your music, no matter how you sing it or play it? They don't like it. They listen to their rock and their, and their, their hip-hop and their, their country. They listen to your, their country. They listen to all that music. You want to know who does care about music? People from other churches that don't like theirs. So put on a good worship band and you'll have all the people that are bored in their worship bands come to your church. But don't think one second that an unchurched person is going to like your music they're like i don't understand this why do they keep standing up sitting down why do they put their hands up why do they clap i do not understand these people they're singing about stuff i don't get you do not understand the unchurched people it's like i hunt elk you know and i also fish it's like going hmm i think i'll put on that hook something i would like to eat And then we wonder why the fish don't eat it. (laughs) We met them where they had a perceived need. We have a drug and alcohol recovery program that runs between six and eight hundred people a week. All the judges make their people come. We went into our community and we said, What is the biggest need in our in this community? We didn't go, well, here's your biggest need. You people are lost and you're going to hell and you're without Jesus. Because they don't think that's their perceived need. We said, what is your perceived need? Well, we've got all these people struggling with drugs and and alcohol and we don't know what to do with them. So we said, okay, we'll help. We started a drug and alcohol recovery program. Now we've started drug and alcohol. We have the largest drug and alcohol program, I think, in the United States, last I heard. They're, they're, we are ministering to people. I mean, things are going on. People are getting saved every week. It is nuts in there. I got more people with no teeth shaking hands at the front door when people come in than I can even tell you. It's like going to Walmart in Arkansas. I kid you not. <laughs> I walk into church and it's all they all they got they got saved and they're all, they've been on drugs for years and they're free and they got we got we got ashtrays out there and they actually smoke there and we got people going I can't believe you let people smoke here and I'm like Jesus hung out with these people if they learn to smoke in our church I have a problem with that but they're coming and they're just coming in and then they come out and they shake hands and they're passing out bulletins and there's no teeth and tattoos and. The guy who runs our dr- alcohol, one of our drug and alcohol re- recovery programs, he's been in prison for years, and now he's been sober for years, and he's got two eyeballs tattooed to the back of his bald head <laughs> just to say to everybody in jail, I see you when even you don't think I see you. That's why he did it. And uh, these guys are... The other thing we went to is we have a, a huge problem with um, benevolence. Single moms, no food, loss of jobs. So we started a food room. So we're feeding all these people, but we're running out of money. So here's what we did. We started a thrift store. We started bringing our goods and stuff there and selling it, which then it funded. It became an economic engine for our single moms, our our single dads, our people who have lost their jobs, our people who are, we, we started a special needs ministry. There was nothing in our area for parents who had special needs. So we started this basketball camp. And it just blew up. It started with ten kids. Next thing you know, there's a hundred kids. And now there's people running all over, or, well, whatever, all over, you know. And it's just it's just amazing to see we found out the needs of this area and we met them right there in the middle. We did not expect them to come to our worship service. Not to mention, it put your people to work. You remember how we were talking about when you put them to work, they experience God and they grow? Well, now you've got we have pods, pastors of the day, both men and women. When you come in for food, and we have lines out the door. When you come in for food, we do some financial counseling with you. We pray with you. We share the gospel with you. Every day I get a phone call up. Almost every day I get a phone call up in my office with a button. It says to all staff, another baptism downstairs, benevolence. They share the Christ with these people. We've got, these are volunteers, pastors of the day, who come in and meet these people, care for them, take them to their small group, and it's just amazing to see what God is doing. But we're meeting these people out here, not expecting them to come to our worship service. Are you seeing what I'm saying? We meet the world. We go to the world. We have a community day twice a year. Before school, 4,500 backpacks filled with, filled with school supplies. We had all of our hair cutters in the church at, at three different locations. Thousands of people came for school supplies. Clothing. We gave away, what is it, Two hundred quarter of a million dollars worth of, of uh, 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 clothing, For these people and they come in and 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 they're like you care for me and you minister to me and and our people are so excited They get to share their faith, you know, and it's just awesome Oh, I love that and And then what we do is we invite them to a worship service Now they come into the worship. service. We know they don't know our music. They don't know what we're doing But they already started these people care about me and we try to preach in such a way that it makes sense to people I'm not afraid to say, let's talk about the Trinity but, or propitiation, but let's put it in terms where you understand it too, so that you don't feel like... I used to come to the church and go, wow, this is a club where they have a different language, a different model that they sing, and different things they believe, and I don't understand any of it, and they must not want me here, because it's for them. We then invite them to the 101 class where they get to hear the plan of salvation. And here's the deal. The unsaved people, they don't want to argue about speaking in tongues. They don't even know what you mean by speaking in tongues. What are you talking about, speaking in tongues? So why do I put something about speaking in tongues in there? Because it's the annoying church people that bounce from place to place to place to blow up the church. It's not the unsaved people. They're like, oh, okay, you loved me. Jesus is real. You showed me he's real. This is how I get saved. Okay. You say there's no speaking in tongues. All right. I don't even know what that is, but other than when I was drunk this one time, I started babbling. Was that speaking in tongues? The 201 class explains the definition of a disciple and helps them figure out where they are in the process. The 301 class is by invitation only, and it's for leaders only. Every year, every ministry in our church is broken into seasons. Somebody was telling me about seasons, or that was you. You've got a season where you take a few months off. We do it this way. We start in September small groups. We get done at the end of May. June, July, and August, we give them time off. Why? Because our people go camping. There's so much snow. It's like sun's out, gone. During that time, we train our people. Now, every summer, they have to come back and go back through the 301. The 301 is the 101 doctrines again, the things that we believe, and the job description that they are accepting. Here's why this is so important. If somebody took a 101 class about the doctrines seven years ago, how much of it will they remember right now? In football, do they go, well, since you learned the playbook last year, you really don't need to know it this year. No, they go back through the fundamentals every year, don't they? This is what we believe. Why? Because our leaders are going to be the ones who protect our small groups. If, most everybody goes through here, and, and the 101 on one class. If let me just—if this is all small groups here, and this is the way our small group system looks. This is the community pastor. He's a full-time. This is on your next page. These are coaches. These are volunteers. These are small group leaders. And these are people in their small group. Every church, every system in our church looks like that. This guy's job is to go to each of his small group leaders and to train them and to relate with them and to care for them. This person's job is to care for his people. This guy's job is to care for his coaches. You see what I'm saying? Small groups across the board. Now, what happens is this coach will train his four, will do the 301 with his four uh, small group leaders. And they'll go back through the 301. Do you remember what we believe about this? Do you remember what we believe about that? These people who come from the 101 class will go into this system. They actually become a part of the small group. So they take the 101 class, they come in here. But sometimes people skip the 101 class and they just come. This guy invites this guy over here and now you got this person over here. Well, what happens when this person comes from the Assembly of God and wants to speak in tongues and hasn't been to our 101 class and has just been coming to our church for a few weeks? And this guy starts talking about speaking in tongues in the small group. Well, this small group leader has been trained in our 301 and he's been trained in our 101. He knows what we believe about that. Therefore, he says, you know what? That's not something we're going to do in this, in this group. If we're going to break these people into small groups, we've got to protect these small groups or they become divisive, they become unruly, they lose their purpose and their focus. By him investing in him, investing in him, investing in them, we keep in alignment theologically. Does that make sense to you? The 101 protects these. I don't want to dump people from 14 different denominations into these small groups without aligning them before they get there. Or what kinds of things are those 14 denominations going to fight about in front of a bunch of non-Christians that are coming through here and their first experience is going to be a small group where the 14 denominations are fighting amongst each other on a variety of different issues. And they're sitting there watching it. Well, I don't know what speaking in tongues is. And I don't know what uh, the tulip for Calvinism is. And I don't know what uh, eternal security is. But you people fight a lot. Why do I want to be in here? Do you understand how we're organizing this? Why we're organizing it? You do not want to just let a bunch of social groups go with no alignment, no leadership, no clear boundaries because these groups will become cancerous and blow up. Now, you see that system. You've got systematic alignment. Now, Last thing, and then I'm going to be done. Is it time to be done? No, you got another hour. Oh, geez, no, I don't. <laughs> Last thing I'm going to talk about is relational alignment. Actually, before I talk about relational alignment, let's do a little Q and A because this is a whole different yeah. concept. Yes, Michelle. Without my bridge. Well, this this system right here is really reliant upon um, these people getting what they need. Let, let me just say it this way. Inspired people inspire people. Right? When you, remember how I, I did this a little bit earlier where I turned it around and I put the people here and I put this here and you remember this and this is the front line, do you remember that? You weren't here. Okay. I apologize. One of the things that I believe is this, that the job of the pastors and teachers is to create a system by which those on the front lines get what they need. Meaning, the front lines are your regular everyday person that works in that office, that goes to that school, that lives in that neighborhood. If you can help them know Christ, free them up to know Christ, equip them and let them serve, they're inspired. And wherever they go, they talk about Jesus. See, what you don't want to hear is that the people that are coming to these groups that are new are primarily coming from this bridge that we've built. They're primarily coming from one-on-one invitations that they're giving to their friends and family. It's being supplemented through the bridges, yes. They're coming from the bridges, but they're also coming as Bob Unruh, one of our guys, shares his faith with his granddaughter's best friend. Or... You know, the kid at a Starbucks is invited four of his friends to come to small group, you know, that works there. They're, so what's happening is, as they get involved and they're being in relationship and they're growing and they're becoming disciples, they know what a disciple is, these leaders are really investing in their people, they're excited about their faith and they don't shut up. But most people are not excited about their faith because all they do is come and sit and listen. But when you invest in them and let them serve, they get on fire. They, they'll never go back. Once they get a taste of winning somebody to the Lord and then baptizing them, when somebody wins somebody to the Lord in our church, you get to baptize them. And, and when they do that and we say, now, listen, you're, you're making a commitment to follow Christ, but you're making a commitment to help them be a disciple. And you help them see that picture. They, at that point, they're just they're, they'll never go back to just sitting in a chair. Does that make sense to you?
0: A little bit? Okay. I'm, I'm. Kurt, you go ahead. And. Okay. Uh, in terms of, you mentioned that uh, the, the main bridge that people come into the church is through invitation. Um, in terms of the curriculum for those groups, does the curriculum really matter? Um, is it more, does it tend to be, I know you don't like to make a separation between evangelism and discipleship, but is it more evangelistic, if you will, as opposed
1: to, or it doesn't really matter? We, we use what's called storytelling or orality. It's called orality. It's storytelling from the Bible. Um, that's a whole different discussion we'll come to, but it's a facilitation-based curriculum, not a teacher-based curriculum, because lecture is the worst way to teach anybody anything. And so, when when you're sitting there talking and not asking questions and not listening and there's no there's not modeling all these things, that you're actually not doing a very good job of teaching. My master's degree, you know, was in education or my, my bachelor's degree and then almost my ma- master's was in education. And, um, you know, the sad part of it is that only 20% of people have an auditory learning style. For instance, how many of you have phased in and phased out even tonight during this session? Raise your hand. Be honest. You heard something, you know, like, hmm, you started thinking about that and I just kept going, right? Or you're like, wow, I'm tired. I wonder who's winning the Monday night football game. Right? Lecture is the worst way to teach anybody anything because people don't learn best that way. Good teachers would hate what pastors crave. Thousands listen to them flap their guns, gums. That's why teachers hate large classroom sizes. You studied with Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Jesus
0: said. She said. Jesus said. She said. Mm-hmm. Jesus said. Just read it. Mm-hmm. And he led her all the way up to the Messiah, uh, a teaching. When you get a feedback, you know that's why the, the teacher in the school will give an examination. Not just for the students, but the teacher wants to know what the teacher is doing, where the teacher is going, and so
1: on. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent way. I would rather teach than preach. Yeah. Yeah, well, even the teaching, though, tends to be lecture in people's minds. That's not real teaching, not effective teaching.
0: By the way, all this is going back to what's your philosophy of how people are changed? Because the church is going to be based on that philosophy. So what Jim is saying is that part of the alignment with them is this is how we believe people are best changed. There's a gentleman with a question back here, and then I'll come over there. Yeah, could you explain to me what you meant by you'll let people come in and sit, but you won't let them be a part of the group until they've passed that course, one-on-one? Yeah,
1: let me give you an example. Let's say that uh, I've got a children's ministry need in my church. Let's say, how many of you have ever had children's ministry needs in your church? Okay. And... So you're like up there going, please help. Jesus loves little children, you know, all the things that you say. And so you got these people that are new to the church and they go, all right, I'll do it. And they're in there and they're in there for like four months, you know, and they're helping and they're caring. and They're building relationships with families and they're building relationships with other teachers. And it's just great, right? Great people. Well, one day you get up and you preach a sermon on something that's pretty basic. Okay. I I don't know. Pick a subject, something that you wouldn't even think is that controversial, but they are ticked. Well, now, they're mad. Who do they tell when they're mad? All their friends that they've made in the last four months, right? And so now, you have a problem. Not only are you going to lose a children's worker, but now there's a bunch of other people going, yeah, I don't know if I believe that too, and... And yeah, what what about that? And they're such neat people. You're being mean. And you're like, what do you mean I'm being mean? I didn't even know there was a problem. You go, and you talk with them. They go, no, I just don't believe that. Let's say they don't believe that you should be baptized. You don't even have to be baptized at all. I was sprinkled as a child. And that's my baptism, and that's good enough. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, baptism by immersion and they go, "Uh-uh," and they're talking to the other people and they're start- Now what would have happened before you let them get involved in children's ministry? if you'd have laid all of this out and they got mad and they left then? How much damage was done in that case versus done of four months of them building relationships in children's ministry?
0: got a question over
1: here. They can come to a small group. But remember, the reason the small group is safe. Is because what typically happens when a person asks in the small group, you know, what about this baptism thing? And I'm not sure I buy that you, I've got to be baptized. I'm mean, always sprinkled as a Catholic. That's, that's good enough. I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. The leader goes, you know what? That's an interesting question. Let's talk about it. Better yet, how about you and I go to 101 together? So they, the leader knows what we believe and protects the group, either takes them through it themselves or goes to 101 with them, Right? And the problem is solved. They can go to home group. They can go to a small group. They can go to a class. Uh, they can go to church. But they will not serve in any capacity in our church until they have had the membership class.
0: Let me just clarify something here too. And I think, Doug, you have a question. Um, in, uh, in the model that Jim is talking about on uh, non-salvation issues, um, the church has a, has a point of view. And uh, he's not saying you have to believe exactly like that, but you can't advocate differently because you want to uphold the teaching that the elders have established. Exactly. Let's
1: say speaking in tongues. We have on our staff charismatics. But as long as they've been in our church, they've known there is no place in our church where speaking in tongues is going to happen in any public setting. Let's say that they said, okay, I won't, but they get into a small group. Now, not staff now. Let's say the regular person gets into a small group and he starts to recruit. Or let's say he says, all right, I won't do it in small group, but I'm going to get a bunch of people to come over to my house for dinner and I'm going to convince them that I'm going to help them find their prayer language. So now they're not doing it in public sitting, but they're doing it in their own household. What are they doing right now? They're dividing. So what we say in the one-on-one class is this. If you want to speak in your in in your prayer language, I I may have a different opinion about that with you, and it's not a salvation issue, and we can agree to disagree, but here's what we can't agree to disagree on. You will not advocate teach that in our church. You will not find a place to do it or to teach it. If you have to do that, if it's that important for you, then I know the pastor of the Assembly of God Church. I know the pastor of the Foursquare Church. They're my friends. I will take you down there to meet them this week. But we will not do that in our church. Doug? You you may have already answered this question. Now, 301 is invitation only. For leaders. For leaders. 201. It's for everybody. So if someone is part of that group and enjoys it, they can invite their friends to come with them to those 201 classes? The only people that can go to 201 are those who have already accepted and been through 101.
0: Let me just uh, help you all to understand what, what, uh, what they found to be effective in making disciples is you have to decide what are the hills we're going to die on, where are we going to fight, and where are we not going to fight. Because I can tell you, and I know it's true most of your churches, you have so many people spending so much time and mental energy Discussing things they don't agree with and, and where they're not all on board and rather than going out and making disciples and focusing on forgiving people and living practical discipleship lives, they're focused on all these things that drain energy and keep everybody distracted. So part of the responsibility of leaders is to say, here's who we are. Here's what we believe. This is essential. This may not be essential, but this is where our church is standing on this. And if you want to be a part of this church, you will not be divisive to that because there's too many more important things to do than to argue about those theological footballs. Now, Jim, I I want to ask you to address this. So we've talked about the theology of it. Um, We also talk about organizational alignment. Can you talk about that just, just, just for a minute? Yeah,
1: organizational alignment happens when all of your people define terms the same way and they understand clearly their part in, in, in making it happen, in the implementation of it. For instance, a community pastor understands his job in relation to the organization as a whole. What is his job? The coaches, volunteer coaches, understand their responsibility and they commit to doing it, and they're expected to do it. The small group leaders understand their role. The apprentice understands their role. The worship team understands their role in relation to the body as a whole. In other words, in our church, if you're going to serve in the worship arts area, you will be in a small group. You don't want to be in a small group. There's nothing worse than having you put somebody on stage who is not growing spiritually but likes to be seen. Problems waiting to happen. If you're not going to be committed to being in a small group and growing spiritually, I don't care how well you play. You are not standing up in front of our people. And if praise and worship is to God, how does he feel about a spiritually immature person leading it? Now, and so how does the worship arts play in what is their job in relation to the whole? What is the job of the worship service? Well, I I view the worship service like a conveyor belt. I know I'm getting people who are coming to our church that are are not connected. I want to make sure that I help them understand they've come from here. We want them to go here and here. We want them to go through that one-on-one, and we want them to go to the small groups. If they're a part of our body, one of the things I do every week to our leaders is I'll say, Hey, I'm going to open up a can of worms this week in my sermon. Uh, And I'm not going to be able to to close all the doors I open. So guess what, home group leaders? Be ready because people are coming with questions. You see what I'm saying? I'm promoting other leaders in the church. I do not want a personality-driven church. I want a values-driven church. You see what I'm saying? So there's other leaders here who can answer questions. Guys, you better get ready. Uh, For those who are serving God... I want them to be motivated. I want them to see people are coming to know the Lord, that what they're doing is mattering. I want to encourage them. I do want to teach some things about their walk with God that maybe they haven't thought about. This last week, the major emphasis was on there's three parts of, the, of uh, discipleship and of ministry. God's part, my part, and their part. I cannot do God's part and I cannot do their part. I can only do my part. Now, why do you think I did that? Because I got people that are discouraged because they're ministering to somebody and they still left their wife. Well, I must have failed. Well, God's not done with them yet. You did your best to minister to them. And you know what? That person made a choice. You can't make the, that person's choice for them. Do you see what I'm saying? God's part, my part, their part. We did that in our, in our service. So I want to encourage the servants I want to let them see God is working to the unsaved in every service. I want to say, we want you to know Jesus. And so we want you to be a disciple. We want to show you how to be a disciple. We want to invite you to our small groups. We are the body of Christ. So it's a conveyor belt here.
0: So uh, if you realize that the goal is uh, making disciples who make disciples then the key thing is that everything in the church is focused on that and to do that. And I will say this to, to, to many of you. Uh, many of you have a legalistic background, and you've reacted against that legalistic background, and you said, I don't want to be legalistic anymore. And so you're hearing this thing, and you're hearing, no, we want everybody on the same team. We're going to process it with you, but at the end of the day, if you're not on the same team with us, then you can go somewhere else. That sounds like the old legalism. It's not the old legalism. It's actually more of a healthy Christianity. This says, here's what we believe, here's where we stand. We're not here to try to please everybody, we're here to please God. We love you, we're not saying we're the only Christians, but this is where we stand. And if we're going to be effective at making disciples, this is what we're going to do. Because if you don't do that, and I know many of you, here's what's going to happen. Your church is going to end up spending a lot of time, spinning balls, focused on things that at the end of the day are not about discipleship. It's about people whining and complaining. Rather than focusing on the main thing, if you want the main thing to be the main thing, you've got to make sure it's the main thing, and everything in the church has to be aligned to get there. Now I'm going to make a switch, uh, and, and I want to. Uh, I'm going to get Jim now to talk about relational alignment. And I, I, before Jim talks about that, I want to tell you why I think this is so important. So we've talked about uh, theological alignment. Not saying that everybody has the same beliefs, in, in my the church that I'm with. We have people uh, in our church who are Calvinists, some who are Armenian, some who speak in tongues, some who don't. We have a very clearly defined, here's what we believe, here's how we handle the essentials, here's how we handle the important things, and here's how we handle the personal things. So you've established that alignment. That's theological alignment. Organizational alignment. The organization has to be all lined up. Some people have all these pet programs that they want to do, but these pet programs are not related to making disciples. Uh, philosophically, if you, if you really believe that the way Jesus made disciples is the way that we need to make disciples, there are some things we won't do. Then you come to this last area. And I am convinced this is the most neglected area in most churches. And here's, it's called relational alignment. And Here's what I've observed. I've observed people who are s- relational babies, who have been Christians for 40 years, who make sure that the church as a whole functions as relational babies. Because we think if you have a lot of knowledge and you've been a Christian a long time, you cannot deal with relationships in the right way and you're still somehow okay. What is it to be a spiritually mature person in terms of how we deal with relationships? This is so vitally important because we're talking about relational discipleship.
1: He was angry with his brother, or his brother was angry with him. And Jesus said, leave it, go and make it right, then come and bring your, your sacrifice. Right? Isn't that what he said? This is a key principle in my life, in something that I've believed in for years, um, that is a, is a big-time part of our core values. Let me tell you how it works in our church. We get Remember how I told you about we've got some staffs that come, Well, all the staffs that come and we say, is the church about discipleship? They say, yes. I say, what is a disciple? They don't know, right? So then we help them come up with a common definition. You know the saddest thing that I found in churches in leadership? Almost 90% probably. These staffs and these elderships and these teams come and they don't know each other. And in many cases, they don't even like each other. And yet, they think God is going to bless their church. They have unresolved issues. They've been hurt. They're bitter towards one another. And yet, they believe God's going to bless their church. God's the one who grows the church. Isn't that true? And in that case, Jesus said, when you bring your sacrifice, and you realize, if there's a problem between you and your brother, don't leave it. I don't want it. Go make it right, then you bring it. And there are people who don't like each other, don't know each other, don't care about each other, are frustrated with one another, and they think God's going to actually bless their ministry. It doesn't matter what system you use. You remember how I said, "As as as the head goes, the body follows? How can your church be relational? When you don't go to your brother when you're upset, you know, I, I've been working with a lot of churches, probably, I don't know, 4,000 churches this year. You know, the number one thing I hear from, from people who are uh, underneath senior pastors, uh, staff members, they say, oh, I would never tell my pastor if I was upset with them. No, no way. I'd lose my job. Are you upset with them? Well, I've been upset with him. Let me tell you all the things. On and on and on it goes. And so you're here at a conference going, how can we reach the world? And we're supposed to love God and love others. And you're the leader, one of the leaders of the church, but you have unresolved issues with your senior pastor. Somehow your organizational structure supersedes Christianity. And that's okay. In other words, he's the anointed one, you can't... No, he's a Christian brother, he may have a different position, but he's a brother just the same. I may be the senior pastor at Real Life Ministries, but I got probably, I don't know how many staff members that are older than me, that that, that understand uh, things about parenting and marriage that I don't understand. I may be the leader, but who who would I think I am to believe that I'm more spiritually mature than some of those godly guys on my staff because I'm the senior pastor? You've got to be joking. We're supposed to be a brotherhood, a family, a a brother-sisterhood, family. Where we we work together, we love each other, are we going to have issues? Wherever there's a person, there's a problem waiting to happen, and it's going to happen. So many people get mad, they just bounce, "I'm mad, I'll leave and go to that church over there." They're spiritually immature. They've been told they're spiritually mature because they really know the Bible. They'd win Bible trivia and trivial pursuit every time. I don't care what you know. If you can't deal with conflict, you're a coward. Meaning that it isn't easy. It takes courage to walk into a brother and say, you hurt me. It takes humility to have somebody come into you and say, you hurt me. And so often, the pastoral leadership can't stand each other, but it is a paycheck, and they think that's okay. Staff members talking about other staff members, and I don't like the way he does that, or she does that. Or they, and, and here's the deal, you can hear the animosity. It's not just a difference in philosophy. And as the head goes, the body follows. If you don't resolve issues, if you don't create a culture where we can deal with things... then they won't. When we talk about relational alignment, you can, you, can have a, you can have a theological alignment. You can be philosophically aligned. Guys, you can have a system that just, ooh, it purrs, but when you put people in that system who will not love each other enough to work out their issues, then the whole thing goes to, goes to pot. It won't work. It doesn't work. The church splits. The fighting like the devil for the things of God. The saying things. That it, and even beyond that, some people think they're really spiritual because they keep it to themselves. And they just go away. That makes you spiritual? I thought spiritual would mean that if I have a problem, we go into a room and I'm not going to leave this room until we work it out. And I love you enough and I value the name of Christ enough that we are going to figure this out. Because we have no option. Do me and my wife fight? Oh, yeah. I don't have an option to leave. I'm called to work it out, no matter what. I don't let the sun go down on my anger because I give the devil a foothold. Is that true or is that not true? I have a bunch of people go, well, I'm I'm over it. Well, then why are you bringing it up for the 67th time? Remember I said that you've got to define discipleship. Discipleship has always been a segment of the church and it pertains to biblical knowledge, transfer of information. A mature disciple is one who has changed at the heart level. They, they are obedient. They forgive. They bear with. They, they look past faults. They deal with issues even when they don't want to. They let people confront them and they're humble enough to listen. And not to say that that you do that perfectly all the time, but are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? That's relational. Relational alignment, the the concept that the church works in, uh, if it's a stew, If there's a stew, the the liquid part of it is the relationship. Everything else fits in that. And without it, without real relationship, I'm not talking about being polite. I've been working with too many people in the South lately. Oh, they're so polite. Underneath it all, there's anger, frustration, bitterness. But they're polite. So you've been feeling that way for this long, and you're hurt and angry, but but you haven't said, well, I just want to be polite. Oh, brother. Be polite, be respectful, be loving, but go to your brother or your sister or, and allow them to come to you and work things out. It's so sad to see staffs and elderships that don't even like each other. And until that part is uh, dealt with, It doesn't matter what you do.
0: Yeah, just any definition of spiritual maturity that doesn't include we handle relational difficulties in biblical ways is a defective view of spiritual maturity. I want to see if you, I have a question for Jim. In fact, I'm going to ask it because I know it's going to be in the hearts and minds of uh, many folks here. So, uh, Jim, you talk about alignment. I think if most people here are honest, their churches are not aligned. Um, One of the things we've said at our church is that, uh, and it was really cool because our staff came to this independently and then our elders did, for us the single most important issue is alignment. We want to be, as a church, all on the same page in terms of how we handle things theologically, philosophically, Organizationally and relationally. And we have said for us, everything else is secondary to that. That's our number one thing because it is so hard. We're, we're a church that's 12 years old, but four years ago, we decided to switch to this model and changing DNA, spiritual DNA, is very, very difficult. So if you were to describe some steps to take, uh, Jim, there's a few church planters here, a few folks here with churches that are still really supple because they're so new, and that's a really good thing. Uh, but some are part of churches that uh, are much older. So what are some things that you'd recommend just in terms of in, you know, helping the church get aligned?
1: Well, let me, let me just say one more thing that I, I think is important. A lot of people are into the do, and they forget the be. Before you do, you've got to be. We've got to be mature disciples. We've got to walk, we've got to abide in Christ. We've got to walk with Him. We've got to know Him. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Isn't that right? Is this okay? Yeah. Is this okay? Yeah. All right, now let's go. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is this okay? Is this okay? Now let's go. Same in your marriages. We want to go down and work at the church, but we think we're okay with being at odds with our wife or our husband. Is this okay? Is this okay? Now my sacrifice of praise is acceptable. Make sense to you? Because if we just do this out here and we forget this near, it's a whitewashed tomb. Jesus talked a lot about that, filled with dead bones. And it's not very attractive, too. Oh, we'll get a lot of people to come and check us out, but once they really get to know us, they'll go, ah, dead bones, stinky. When it comes to alignment in a new church, it's best to define terms and set goals at the beginning and to be tenacious, tenaciously guarding the DNA, tenaciously guarding the the direction and the vision that God has given the church. You have 100% of yourself, your energy, your resources to give. It's like if I knew I had one tank for this week, I would measure everything according to that tank. I would not take trips I did not need to take to the store. If I did go to the store, I'd make sure I went to all of them at once and I found two that were right next to each other that had the stuff that I need. Wouldn't Wouldn't you do that? To say, all right, we are about making disciples. In order for that to happen, we must carefully protect the energy of our church, the resources of our church. And we will ask this question, how does that make disciples? If it doesn't make disciples, if it, 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 how would I measure if it did? Everything that we do, how does it measure if we are making disciples? And so you have to have, all right, you need to have a common definition. And notice, he says, be of one heart and one mind. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If you're starting a church and you get some guy on your team and you have him on your team because he's a brilliant guitar player and he's a great worship guy, but he does not believe in making disciples, he believes in putting on a show, get a lesser guitar player that believes what you believe. Do not be divided. On those issues, clearly define what a disciple is, clearly define how disciples are made, then clearly put together a system together with all your leaders, and then anybody that comes in from then on protects that DNA. We've had one goal for 12 years. We now have four new elders that came up from within the system. We have 11 elders. They came through the small group system here, they went to a small group, they became a small group leader, they uh, became a coach. Uh, 83 of our staff came from the same system and and eventually came to a full-time staff position there. But many of these guys became our elders. These guys don't come in and go, let's change the vision and the direction. They're absolutely bought into. This is what the word says about what a disciple is. This is how disciples are made. This is what we're doing. They're absolutely committed to that. All right. For an existing church, It's been around for a long time. It's a whole different thing. Remember, getting people aligned on the same goal is essential to success. There's no way you will succeed unless you get your people aligned. Won't do it. Oh, you'll have nominal success, but you won't do it. You've got to get them aligned. But that's going to take time. The bigger the ship, the slower the turn. If you take a big ship and turn it fast, you throw everybody overboard and it sinks. It takes time, it takes getting everybody, the key players on board, it takes work. One of the, things, the great things that many of the pastors have done is brought their whole team over to our staff and, and through the training, and they all experience it together. The worst thing you can do is come as your senior pastor, go back and say, we're changing everything. Well, they haven't experienced what you experienced. They don't know what you know. And if you're one of those guys that's going to a different conference every year and coming back going, we're changing everything. They're like, hey, I'm not getting on that train because I know you'll come back and change it again next year anyway. It takes building relationship. If you've been hiding in your office thinking you were making disciples by and, and building loyalty by preaching sermons, then you don't have, uh, I'll never forget this, we had a big church from California come over, and just, he just showed up with his executive pastor and his small groups guy, church of about 4,000, and he just showed up. I don't know if he thought we didn't have anything else to do, but since he was there, he wanted to meet with me and some of the other guys, so I went in, and, and he, what had happened was they were a church of about 6,500, and he had a heart attack, and while he was gone for 10 months, the church went from 6,500 to 3,000, and he realized that it was all personality driven. So he got back in the pulpit, started preaching, and immediately he went back up to 4,200 or 4,400, whatever it was. And, and he, he came to this place where he's like, wow, this is a show. So he read uh, the book and he comes over and he's like, all right. And, uh, and I go, well, he goes, I'm going to change, I need to change everything. This needs to become about discipleship. And I, I, so I'm sitting there. He's sitting right here. His executive pastor is behind him and his small group pastor is back there. And I go, well, let me ask you a question. Are you the one of the kind of guys that uh, is always coming up with a new plan and changing it? He goes, oh no. And they were behind him going. <laughs> and I, I was like... I go, let me ask you, does your staff trust you enough to, to, to follow you into this change? And he's going, oh yeah, we have a great relationship. They're back there going... I said, tell me what your day is like. And he started to explain to me what his day was like. He didn't spend time with his staff. He didn't know his staff. He was doing this big dinner, that big dinner. You know, he was a big shot in the town he was in. And, and they didn't know him. And he, the rest of his time, spent time on his beautiful, wonderful sermons. And uh, what do you think his chances were of um, changing in that church? Really poor. And you know what? His staff wouldn't even get on board with him because they knew he was only saying that for a little while and it'd just be about six months until was back to his old self. And you know what? That's absolutely true. And both those other staff members quit and went to a different church since that time. You know, um, the first step is you saying, all right, I, am I being relational? Do my staff trust me? And sometimes you think they do and they don't. And first thing is to heal that relationship and get everybody in and go, we got we to gotta make some decisions. We got to think through things. Many times I've handed out the book and said, we're all going to read this book. And we all read the book. And what do you think about that? And then we whiteboarded together. What did you get out of that? What do you think we ought to do with this? And and we whiteboarded and we got everybody on board. Uh, change takes time. Let me give you an example. People think we're a new church. It's 12 years. I don't know how long you're a new church, but... but uh, they think it's hard to change an existing church, and, and it is if you if you don't know how to lead change. Here's one of the things we did. When we first started small groups, they were all relational small groups. We had people that lived in Rathrum having small groups with people that lived in Coeur d'Alene, and they were driving 25 minutes because they worked together to the same small group. Well, do you remember when gasoline hit $4 a gallon? Did that happen for you guys over here? That's a dumb question, wasn't it? What, what does $4 a gallon mean to you guys? Cheap? Oh, geez. <laughs> Never mind. Well, that's expensive for us. And, uh, you know, our people were so relationally tight, and we said, you know what? We had coaches. This is how it worked for us. We had coaches that, it, remember, in, where we live, the counties are huge. I don't know how big the counties are here. But we'd have a coach, a volunteer coach, Who had a small group over here? 15 miles from there was another one. 25 miles from there was another one. This volunteer guy had five different home groups he had to go to, and it's four dollars a gallon. And he doesn't really get to. I mean, how hard is this for this volunteer guy to work and to have a family and to to check on these guys? And we said, you know what we're going to do? We need to go to we need to go to community small groups, geographical small groups. We need to split our area into eight areas. And then what we need to do is we need to put the coach that lives there near the home groups that live there. You see why you do that? So that you could visit all three or four of your groups in one night. You could get your whole, have a whole block party of small groups because sometimes there would be ten small groups in one neighborhood. So we went to, and I said, now here's the deal, this is the way it ought to look, it's cheaper, better coverage, we can reach their neighbors, we we could start prayer walks in our neighborhood, who's not saved, who isn't saved, draft the whole thing out, sick these people on their neighborhoods, this would be really good. Problem was, all these people have been in relationship for years, so here's what we did, we went, okay, do we believe this is right? Got all the elders in the room, got all the uh, executive team in the room, then got all the staff in the room, 90 of us at one time. What do you think? We went step by step. We, packed, we planned out a year-long, year, year two-months-long change. We took our calendar and went, first thing we're going to do is get the elders and the executive team on board. The next month, we're going to get the whole staff on board. The next month, we're going to bring the coaches in. The next month, we're going to bring the small group leaders in. The next month, we're going to bring the, um, the people in the small groups in. Then we're going to announce it to the whole congregation. We took a whole year. Problem was, this took longer to get everybody on board, and then that tipped that, so that meant it got to be further out, and it took longer than we thought. But we slowly but surely got everyone on board at every level with what we were doing and why. And we listened to them. What do you think about this? What's the downside of this? How do you think this will affect us? As we went through this whole thing, we listened to them. We knew them. These people knew each other. They knew we loved them. We listened to what they had to say. In the end, we made an entire change and didn't lose any of our leaders. Not one. That is a huge change for a church. One of the things that really helped us is we went to another church to look at a building because we were thinking about building another building. And that weekend, the senior pastor, a church of eight thousand, the senior pastor had gotten up and announced they were going to geographical small groups. This was on Friday. It had happened the Sunday before. Since Sunday to Friday, all but two of their volunteer coaches, out of their six hundred small groups, had quit. Six out of their seven community pastors had quit. You know why? Because none of them had heard it except for the executive team and the elders and the senior pastor until that Sunday when it was announced. How would you like to be a volunteer coach dedicated yourself and you don't even, they don't even tell you, don't even ask you, don't even talk to you? You're on staff. They don't ask you, tell you, talk to you. We went to look at their building and the place was a complete disaster. Leadership, there is getting to the right destination, but there's getting there the right way. And sometimes that means you have to fight the right fights, but you better know what those fights are and you better be in relationship with your people because if your people don't trust you, they're not following you.
0: So basically, taking what Jim said, you know you want to start with the uh, leaders of your church, probably uh, first your elders, then uh, the elders and the staff, and then from the staff down there, some of your churches have deacons, down to your small group leaders and try to work it through that way. But you've got to get your leaders all aligned first.
1: And one thing that really just kills me I hate it when people send their small group leaders to our small, uh, small head of small groups to our church, and the senior pastor won't come. I hate that. There is no there's no small groups leader in the world who can change their church without the senior pastor the main vision caster being on board. If that that senior pastor better be in a small group and he better talk about a small group from the pulpit. He better it, the head of the small groups ministry is not the small groups guy, although he has to have one. It's the senior pastor in our church it is sin for us not to do small groups because that's how Jesus made disciples. And, and so when it gets tough, we don't go, well, it's pretty tough. Let's find a different way. We go, no, this is, it's like marriage. We, this is God's plan for marriage. It is not okay to even think about divorce. We're going to work this out. Same thing. We will not turn from being a small groups church. And when it doesn't work right, we will figure out how to fix it because there is no other option. And that goes from the top, me, to and our elders, to all the way down, to every staff member, to every major volunteer. That is what we are. That is what we will be. And there are no options. We have burned the ships. Does that make sense to you?
0: All right. Um, I want to um, see if there's any... Uh, burning questions, I want to tell you a couple things and then uh, let everybody out of here before nine. Yes. We talked about communicating alignment. Yep. That's how we can work achieving
1: are we're, we're gonna work on all of that. One of the things we do in immersion two and immersion three. Oh we haven't really talked about how to achieve alignment. I mean, here's a picture of, of, of alignment. You're aligned this way. How would I actually do that in my own church? And uh, let me say this. Um, immersion two, immersion one in our church is it goes over the concepts, but it's very experiential. Meaning, this is a seminar, you won't, this is good, but you will not get half of what you will get in that immersion. Because you actually experience it, what a small group looks like and what discipleship looks like. You get it modeled for you. Some of you. Somebody asked, was that you, Lee, about being modeled for? That's where you get that model. They actually show you how to do it. Immersion 2 is all about getting your team relationally aligned, working through your issues. I can't tell you how many times people have come and said, oh, we're perfectly aligned, and so we start, we have this whole process, and they end up in a three-hour war. It's great because we help them resolve it. But man, it's just beautiful when they get after it. I love that. And then immersion three is um, where we actually help you piece by piece, systematically uh, put together what that church should look like with your people. We just ask questions. We help facilitate your own people putting it together with your culture. In other words, I don't know what your culture is. I don't know who your people are. I don't know who your main obstacles are going to be. I don't know who your main, you know, but I do know this. You've got to have a small group system. It's got to be fed from uh, from the top down. It's, there's got to be a filter that protects it. Now, we can talk about ways to change that and ways that, ways that can look tomorrow, but um, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of what-if questions kind of thing.
0: Let me just mention for... Uh, I would encourage everybody to go through the immersion that Jim talks about. We took our staff through it, um, and I think it's a really important process, both the immersion one and the immersion two, and now they've got a third part to it. If you can't do that because you're in a place without resources, let me recommend a book to you. Uh, it's by a guy named John Cotter, and it's called Leading Change. It's, uh, uh, it's actually a business book from Harvard Business School, but it's excellent for churches. So it's called Leading Change, and there's a seven-step process to take an organization through change there that I think does, it, does a great job. Uh, let me mention a, just a couple things. Um, there's, uh, we, I was not able to bring a lot of these over across the border, uh, but I've been able to bring one of these for each of the churches who are represented here. I think we have 17 churches, or maybe 16 churches and two organizations. So we have enough of these for everyone For every organization to get a copy to look at, Jim is going to unpack the material in this book. Uh, He's already unpacked some of it. He's going to unpack it tomorrow in more detail when we start at 1230. Um, Many of you have really practical questions. How do you disciple somebody in a small group? If the small group is not about just having friendships and relationships and a little Bible study and a little prayer, if it's really about discipleship, how do you do that in a small group? And this book walks through the whole, how you take people from not being Christians to being born again, from infant to child to adult to parent. Uh, and it's a really good read. Uh, some, some cool stories in it. So I just want, want you all to be aware of that, and I, and I commend it. And then I want to uh, also uh, talk about, this is a workbook. By the way, both of these books just came out in the last month, and uh, Jim along with uh, two guys from his staff, Brandon Ginnan and Bill Krause, and Avery Willis, who most of you don't know, but has been hugely influential in uh, discipleship movements across the globe. Uh, He recently passed away. Avery uh, worked with him on this, and it's a workbook. So, like, uh, I'm going to, with our elders, uh, where I'm at, and with the men that I'm trying to disciple to be leaders in our church, we're working through this. Because I want to do all I can so that everybody's on the same page in terms of understanding discipleship. So, in terms of a situation like this, uh, this would be a great thing to take all your small group leaders through and your elders through so they're all on the same page. You want to say anything about those books? He doesn't like it when I promote his books. So, um, but I'd like you to say just a word about them. No. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you all for being here tonight. <laughs> If we wrestled, he'd beat me, so.
1: Well, the reason we did that is we, we, we started talking about what I'm talking about now in church as a team sport. It was more of a 30,000-foot view. And people are like, okay, i got to align our church, and we got to get it. It's got to be about discipleship. It can't be about the show. All right, great. You want it to be in small groups, but in the small group, how do you actually have that be a discipleship small group and not just a small group? Well, okay. So then we what I what we did is we mapped out what we do step by step in that. So the book is just, you know, like you would read it, but the workbook is designed to actually um, l- lead a small group like Experiencing God, where you actually, you, how many of you have ever done Experiencing God? One of the greatest books of my life right there. But it's a great workbook where you go through, well, Experiencing God's a great workbook. This one's okay. Uh, you go through it and it teaches you how to actually make disciples. So, um, you know, I it, I think it would I think it would help.
0: So, good Jim, tell us what you're going to what we're going to talk about tomorrow. We're
1: going to we've been talking about alignment and and organizing your church in such a way that you get people into small groups. Now we're going to start talking about what do you do in your small groups to make disciples. So, um, once you get them there, how do you, you want them to be growing or they're just, like I said, a time bomb waiting to go off. A bunch of flesh in a group isn't a good thing. So how do you, uh, how do you teach people how to make disciples? And, and also, honestly, um, what you're going to find is that you're going to be able to, as, you, as we go through the concepts, you're going to go, wow, I got a bunch of leaders that are spiritual children because it helps you define who you're talking to and how and where they're at in the process if we always talk about in in coaching there's three key components number one I know the game I can walk into any high school and go into a wrestling practice and sit against the wall and I can tell you who in the group is a brand new wrestler who is a medium you know maybe a JV wrestler who's a varsity wrestler and who's good enough to win state with the right training how do I know that I've done it for years. I've coached for years. I know the game, right? The second thing, though, it's not enough to know the game. You have to be able to evaluate where your players are at in the process. You have to be able to do that. You have to be able to go, okay, I know what they're supposed to be able to do. Now I can see where they're at. Thirdly, I know how to create an environment for growth. I know what they need. In other words, in wrestling, there's top, bottom, and neutral. If they're good at neutral and they're good at bottom, but they're not good on top, if I'm coaching against them, I'm going to put him on top so I can beat him. But if I know those three areas where they need to be good and he's weak here, I'm going to create an environment where he can get better here. I have to know how to do that. That's what coaches do. It's the same in the Christian walk. I understand Christianity. I can tell where a person's at in their walk with God by being being with them, spending time with them. And now I can help create an environment to help them grow. What if you you had 100 of those who knew the game of Christianity, could evaluate where somebody's at, and could help them grow spiritually to maturity? What if you had 100 of those?
0: And then tomorrow night we're going to talk about orality, which is storytelling in small groups and how that's so effective in the process. If you are the senior leader of a church or an organization, tomorrow, by the way, uh, there's a longer supper break, and that's because uh, we want to give you some time with Jim over supper to process some things, and to look at uh, the possibility of coaching with Jim over the next 10 months. Um, I want to kind of leave you with this teaser for tomorrow. Uh, Many of you are from Calgary. If I say the name Peter Kanellan, how many of you know who Peter Kanellan is? Oh, only me and Greg Ludke? Thanks, Greg. So when I was in high school, uh, I played football for uh, Lord Beaverbrook. We played Viscount Bennett. Viscount Bennett had not lost a football game in 13 years because Peter Cannellen was the coach. And here's what happened is that team only knew a few things, but they knew it so well because that's the way Peter Kinnellan coached. Everybody there knew exactly what they were to do and how to do it, and they did it so well that for 13 years nobody could beat them. He went on and became the uh, football coach at the Calgary uh, Dinos and won a couple of national championships there. You think about it. One thing, if you want to lead people, you have to really understand systems and what they need and how they get there. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. How about I lead us in a word of closing prayer? God, thank you for all these men and women who are here. We pray and ask that you'd use these things to create excitement in us, and a determination that we're going to be better and more committed in your power and by your strength to make disciples. We bless everyone as they leave. In Jesus' name, amen.